Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm Michael. I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. It is no secrets from previous episodes that you may have heard that we are all book people. And I don't actually watch as many movies as I used to these days. And we have Corey on record on a previous episode specifically saying, books are better. (laughs) I stand by it. (laughs) And yet, when a film adaptation of a book we like comes out, we still get excited. You know what? Even though I've been disappointed so many times, yes. I'm like, maybe this time. Maybe. (laughs) I get excited when the movie actually looks like it'll be good. Um, I... I know this is somewhat of a cynical view, but I'm a very big believer in you can tell from the trailers if it's worth seeing. And if it looks like it's not worth seeing, I'm usually just disappointed they wasted such good source material. I don't watch trailers anymore. They spoil the best parts of the movie usually. So I just don't. (laughs) So if you haven't guessed from our preamble already on this, our 46th episode, we are talking about book-to-film adaptations... Because this is a science fiction fantasy podcast, we're probably going to mostly focus on those, uh, especially because we are getting a third, count it, a third adaptation of Dune coming out. And despite being so disappointed in the last two, we're still excited. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to actually express a little bit of surprise that this is only the third Dune adaptation. Um, I know there was a video game franchise of it. I think back in the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, yeah. That was quite popular. Like, so you, you would think Hollywood would have, like, strip-mined it for any usable idea at this point, but they surprisingly haven't. Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about Dune a little bit, but we're not going to talk about Dune exclusively, because I feel like we're going to come back to Dune after the Denis Villeneuve movie comes out and probably have a whole episode related to that, but I'm sure we'll talk about this particular adaptation at some point. Well, I'm only bringing it up because we ended up hyped, even though beforehand, I think we were all like, I don't think this book could really make it properly to the screen. We've been so disappointed the last few times. And then a trailer comes out or a director we like gets attached to a project where someone's like, oh, oh, we we should start talking about this again. It's back in my mind. Time to start thinking about that book again. I think that's mainly what happens to book people because adaptations reach a much larger audience. Yeah. And because they still get people talking about the book. Yeah. And then it comes to your mind like, oh, I read that. Yeah. I totally want to start talking to more people about that. And then the conversation happens. Everyone's excited. And then the movie comes out. And oftentimes that's where that all ends. For for lack of a better term, um, I think one of the great things about film adaptations is they justify a certain degree of evangelism on the part of book people. (laughs) We all love books. And I think a, a universal trait that I've encountered in pretty much everyone I've ever talked to who reads is that book people always like to push books that they enjoy on other people. Yeah. So when, when an adaptation comes out and suddenly this thing is in the popular consciousness, you're like, oh, the book is amazing. Here, let me shove it down your throat in a way that's actually socially acceptable. Yeah, it's not that different from any other kind of group sharing. And I think that's what makes it exciting every time is you're like, maybe this time I can get others on the thing I like. It's it's like walking into a nerd store and meeting the person who plays a lot of Dungeons and Dragons who will talk your ear off about it. Or going to like a sports bar and having somebody who really, really enjoys baseball or if, since we're Canadian hockey, tell talk to you about it. It's kind of the same thing. It's just that there's not really many other ways you'd get like people to think about books post-education <laughs> like post-forced education maybe we might say uh so yeah i, I just want to point out i think your sports example is in theory because i don't know that you would have any first-hand experience to draw on from that it's totally in theory but um i would imagine that that would be the thing and i just didn't want to restrict myself to just 
purely sci-fi fantasy things. This is what people do when they're excited about something, and they want others to also share in the enjoyment of the thing that they like. It's like anything. You could find model train people who would be like this. You could find people who build Lego who would be like this. You could find... You will find a group of people. I, I was going to say, I, I, I know at least one model train and at least one Lego person. They're the same person, incidentally, but yeah, no, yeah. I, I didn't give them a chance. Yeah, but... And, yeah. and the biggest group of all, bird watchers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But the blue tit, Michael. <laughs> it was just amazing. So we've talked about all the hype that comes in when the movie comes out, and then it comes out... And then when we actually talk about the adaptation, I find we often talk about the story as somehow separate from the medium that has conveyed it. So we make these comparisons uh, and we often go, is it faithful to the story? Mm -hmm. Was the story conveyed the way we wanted to? And I just wanted to start off by recognizing that the medium of the source material, since we're in Canada, we need to... Always circle back to Marshall McLuhan because, you know, it's canon. Medium is the message. The form that the story took, again, I'm talking about as if it was a separate thing. The form in which we experienced it the first time obviously influenced that experience. Mm-hmm. Writing the book makes it a completely different thing in my when I'm reading it mm-hmm. than... I'm watching it or it's being made into a visual medium or it becomes a comic book or whatever. Well, I, I think um, another thing to consider as well is what do you mean by adapting a story? Do you consider ad- adapting a story to be literally picking up every narrative beat for beat from the book? Or do you consider it being conveying the ideas and the themes the book is explored? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can think of what are probably some of the best adaptations I've ever seen, where there are a few cases I would even argue they surpass the source material because they didn't focus on completely adapting the story. They focused mm-hmm. on adapting the core idea. Yeah, And yet you usually get the thing that happens with like the book people and the general public if, or, or the plebs, maybe <laughs> that's the book people might refer to them because maybe they read Latin shit, too, because they're book people. But um, so the book th- three people... of us in this conversation, you're the only one who can read Latin. So, Doesn't that's matter. You. so let's say book people versus the plebs. Um, what happens? And I think of this being most well illustrated by like the Lord of the Rings adaptations of the early 2000s is the sort of like staunch gatekeeping around but that like what was what's the correct or the real thing and it's like yeah that was good but also it's better in this thing and there's a kind of an interesting purity thing that goes on and I don't even know if it's because people really feel that the book is actually better or if it's just that you're always nostalgic about the first way you experienced something going in with that though (laughs) um part of the reason i think a lot of book people always prefer the book or often prefer the book Mm -hmm. is the argument that's usually made is nothing can compare to your own imagination Mm -hmm. if you read a lot you probably have a strong imagination you're used to visualizing things in your own head And there is nothing that can compare to that. No matter how great a spectacle is, it will never live up to what you've been able to conceive in your own mind. And there's there's that perceptual issue that the way you envisage the book is not the way other people who encounter the same text do. You always have your own unique takeaway from it. But a movie, because everyone can see it, you have different... You have in some ways, like, you know, the scene is still shot the same way. Everyone's looking at the same shot, even though you're still reading the same amount of text. Like, you might have different flourishes on what a dragon looks like, for example, that makes it cooler to you than to others. And I have to, like, come clean that, you know, as a younger person, I was one of these real book snobs who would insist that movies couldn't be as good and would be really quite an asshole towards other people. This is just... That thing that happens as you get older, where you're like, wow, every five years, I'm like, what a horrible person I was all the time. Um, Because now I'd say, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with not wanting to read a book or preferring to experience something in a film or preferring a different type of media. Because there's, I mean, as a preference, that's fine. And also respecting that reading may be challenging for people and may not be the most accessible form of something. So that's fine to me. I, I no longer really care if people like the movie or, or a book. I will still be excited and try to encourage people to read the book because then I could 
talk about it with them and stuff. But I, I don't know. Like, I'm not so much that, like, like I was in my early 20s when I was more like, this is the way it should be for something. I I think there's a certain degree of fairness to that. Like part of getting older is that you realize, well, certain things you may prefer and well, you even may argue that certain things are objectively better, even though they're actually not. That's a purely subjective thing. You you do recognize that other people prefer to experience things in other ways. Yeah. (laughs) And just circling back to that idea of everybody's imagining something different, like what you feel and experience when you're reading actually is wildly different between people. Some people, even this, when I was younger, you read the book and you're so immersed, you're not even aware of the words on the page, your imagination's in overdrive, you have this whole holographic visual experience happening that swept you away. Uh, I haven't felt that in decades. I don't experience books that way anymore. I totally experience books now as I'm engaging with the prose and what the author is writing, and I can come up with images afterwards that I might draw or have it hold into my head. But that's not what I feel when I'm reading it. And I fully recognize other people are still having that swept away experience. Mm -hmm. Other people have something completely different from either of those two extremes. Mm -hmm. While, like you said, with a movie... We're experiencing something visually, but I think to a degree that's still happening, where Mm -hmm. what I see when I watch a movie may not be the same thing somebody else sees. Oh, well, like the epistemology of perception is like a big thing still always, but yeah. We're getting into the whole notion that every individual's perception is individual Mm -hmm. to them. So, I mean... What I see as red is not necessarily what you see as red, but my red's pretty awesome. So, but I even think about like fillers. Yeah. Like if you think about, because normally in a film, like what's out of focus in the background, right? Because mm-hmm. often the the because the camera is a lens, it has to have a depth of field. It will focus usually on the faces. But what as you're watching a scene go by, and the first time, I'm not I'm not counting like when you're like when you're a film nerd and you go back and rewatch things and just look at the background to see what was going on in the set and like rewind. Not that, but when you're first just experiencing and just watching the film the first time, um, what you fill in in the background because we know that you know people that that people are able to like guess what's going on or will like assume things going on in 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 backgrounds. There's lots of like little. Um, things that you can that you can do that are like mind tricks to be like look at how you how like whatever your brain is is doing to fill in like mesh patterns whatever you're filling in 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 the background is a little bit different between people so what's actually seen is like what you're saying different there but I think that's amplified with books because everything is filled in by yourself I was gonna say every every artistic medium does that to some extent like Mm -hmm. um, I remember reading a book one time where they mentioned a conversation was happening in the kitchen. They did not at all describe the kitchen, but just as soon as they say the word kitchen, oh, you've got a mental image of a kitchen, mm-hmm. right? Like it, there, there are little tricks and shortcuts for how you focus attention and set mm-hmm. scenes. And every medium has its own ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. What all of that high level discussion was leading into was a pretty simple thing I wanted to say, which is we all personally know what makes a good book to us. Mm-hmm. And what makes a good movie to mm-hmm. us, what makes a good play, etc. And yet, it still feels like some books, some stories are more suitable for multimedia adaptation than others. Mm-hmm. I think there's room to argue that. I don't think it's necessarily that certain narratives are better for adaptation, so much as the current model most films are produced in selects for certain types of narratives. Um, I've often made the very cynical comment that Hollywood is where ideas go to die. And I mean, there's a whole other argument we can have there, but I I don't think it's too controversial to say there is a certain type of story that Hollywood, or a certain set of story types that Hollywood gravitates towards. And since that's where we as a North American audience get most films from, we're exposed to certain types of narrative in film. And for a specific case, I think that is very true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I was going for was something a bit more broad for a multimedia kind of franchise, for a lack of a better word. I hate that word. Uh, I was thinking of something like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which has the benefit of Douglas Adams being the guy who uh, 
Marie is showing that she is now wearing a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy shirt. I completely forgot you were going to talk about Which I did not notice. (laughs) I completely forgot you were going to talk about this, so this is actually accidental, but anyway. To be fair, fair, the webcam doesn't actually catch her shirt, it just catches her face. Anyway, sorry Michael, carry on. So that has the benefit of having the same author who's making wildly different versions across different media, Mm. but which still fundamentally captures the same kind of magic Mm -hmm. through the different forms that it took until the stuff that came after he passed away. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, the the radio play is so great, actually. It is. And definitely that's that's a case where... Because often people will be like, well, the book has to be the first version. But actually, no. Because, like, The Hitchhiker's Guide was first a radio play. And... um, Neverwhere was first a BBC series. By Neil Gaiman, yeah. A real cheap BBC series. <laughs> Neil Gaiman wrote the screenplay and then he adapted it to a novel. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah. what is the adaptation there? Mm-hmm. Um, so... so this is speaking to just my personal feeling, like some of these things really work when you move them to different media, whereas something like Solaris, for example... I don't feel has worked outside of being a book, and I don't know if it can. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a personal feeling. Some people love that Tarkovsky movie. Well, my understanding. I like one scene in it. My, my understanding, and I say this having not seen the movie versions of Solaris, is that Stanislaw Lem was personally opposed to them because he felt they never actually adapted the idea of his book. Mm-hmm. They took one superficial plot element changed it so that it wasn't what was actually in the book and made that the focus of the story. Whereas with, like, The Hitchhiker's Guide, like, Douglas Adams was like, well, I was doing... He he says in interviews he did radio plays because that was an easier thing to get into at the time. Um, and you could do a lot, just kind of... He had a lot of freedom. But, like, he wisely, like, changed what kind of humor was was working because some things work better verbally and some things mm-hmm. work way better in a book. There's all kinds of, like, jokes you can make about people's thought processes that happens in books that you can't really do um, verbally. But that's, like, the same author... I think it's good to have these examples where, like, there's one author who is doing multiple different media because it shows that even the same person doesn't do the same thing in each media. Because the idea that you should be able to transport one media to another is just it's just not the case they do different things what? so having him should him like uh, with that or or with with neverwhere like making active different artistic choices because it's the better choice like i love in neverwhere where the, i don't remember where it is it might be in the dvd stuff where neil gaiman was like i assumed harrods would be fine with us filming like when it was closed but harrods was not fine so they had to do it on the, the whatever ship that is yeah, in, ship <laughs> instead but in the book he's like well the budgets you know whatever i feel like putting down so then the night market was in herod's and it's just it's a it's the scene he wanted but he could the media let him do it so yeah one thing you just briefly touched on that i think is worth just making a clear point is different media exist or mediums exist because they do different things mm-hmm. um you know so that's part of why I think some adaptations arguably work better is maybe the narrative they're telling can better be represented in the medium it's being adapted to mm-hmm. where another story because of what it does may not be adapted as well mm-hmm. because it doesn't suit that medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just keep it in the back of your head. Hey, what would happen if someone made a book of the new sun movie? Oh God. For your example of something that is so tied to the form that it first appeared. Yeah. <laughs> that it feels like an impossible task to transfer. Well, I could see a mini series else. possibly. I was I, I, I could see if the book of the new sun was going to be turned into film. Yeah. I could maybe see a mini series, but even then there's so many dimensions of the way the story is told that don't really translate well to film. Like um, mm-hmm. in, I remember in a book of the new sun episode, we talked mm-hmm. about how the narrator is constantly lying to you. Like as the audience, you are never being told the truth by the guy telling the story. So how do you convey that in film? And there are ways mm-hmm. of doing it, mm-hmm. but they're not quite as easy to pull off as you know literature would be yeah it would it would just be different like it would it, obviously like i think what we're, we're just saying is that because different media do different things then some stories may not adapt well because 
you if a, if a director say reads a book and loves whatever is happening, it depends on whether or not a person can recognize that the thing that they love about it is something that can be done on the screen or not. Um, I would I would say um, because certain things just can't don't work in in film that work in books and certain things that um, don't work in books work really well on film. So I think I would make the argument that's what a good director does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, unfortunately, because the Hollywood model is the dominant model, we get a lot of movie adaptations of books where it was clearly just somebody thought that something would make a good visual spectacle. And we've all expressed frustration with adaptations before that ignored the substance of the story to pick pick up on the one or two elements that could be made spectacular to look at, even though they completely were completely devoid of any real substance that made the story worth reading. I mean, it doesn't help that there are some books that are effectively visual spectacle, but don't have much merit to them, such as maybe The Wheel of Time. (laughs) So, like, you know... Coming to Amazon soon. Seriously? Oh, yeah, they're making an Amazon series. It looks... that, That looks... You know what? Fine. You guys do you. Godspeed <laughs> to you. Yeah. If, if, if people enjoy it and want to read it and want to watch it, power to them. I, I, I gave up on those in high school. I yeah. just couldn't take them anymore. We're not doing a Wheel of Time podcast right now. Maybe we should move on from that. <laughs> Sorry. I so we've it made it pretty clear. Different media do different things. Mm-hmm. So what benefit really is there in comparing the source material to an adaptation? Uh I don't have an answer for this besides it's fun. <laughs> yeah. I actually think I do. Um, but it only works with what you would consider a good adaptation. A good, And obviously that's subjective to every audience member. But I, I, I've had moments where I've loved a book. I thought it was brilliant. thought it was amazing. And the adaptation, while maybe not quite close, was very good in its own right. And the advantage, I think, in that case is because the movie can be watched quicker than the book can be read, if you still want at least a hint of what made the book great and what it touched inside you, but don't have the time to commit to reading it, or maybe you're reading another book, or maybe your life is hectic, the movie is at least a way you can capture some of that. One benefit is that you can kind of have an interesting discussion on technical levels, like what was cool in the book or what was cool in the way they filmed something and just in the craftsmanship of the two things. Because now you have two sources of media to, to look at. And, um, you know, otherwise it's it's kind of... In, in comparing two media, I feel like it's easier to talk to people like just casually when you're doing a comparison. But when you're just kind of like talking about a book or just film... Maybe people are not that interested. Maybe this sort of gives you something else to look, to look at. I do have an answer. Yeah. And that the adaptation can make me consider new angles and think mm-hmm. about things I haven't thought before about the source material mm-hmm. and vice versa. It helps you in interpretation. It lets you mm-hmm. move your brain around those corners and blind spots that you maybe had before. And part of and that's kind of the major advantage to me. Well, and part of that actually is that um, the decisions made, the interpretation decisions made, even if they're ones you disagree with, you can look at them and go, okay, that was interesting. Why did they choose that interpretation? And how does that change the experience of it if we go with that? Yeah, and you know what? It's I do usually make a decision to deliberately try to experience things in their original medium first before I go on to other ones. Like, I've read Akira. We haven't watched Akira yet, but I read it. Eh, I'm hoping the movie's better, actually. Um, but there's there's been some movies that have come out that I haven't read the book of yet so i haven't seen the film because be, because i do find that if you do it the other way around films once if you see a film for us it usually does constrain your imagination on what the book will be like for you um just in terms of the images that will happen i usually prefer to go book to film um like in mm-hmm. in, in order if that was the way it was first i mean i guess we'll be talking about the opposite thing <laughs> that happens sometimes too but that's a that's a whole that's something i've actually never cared about so whatever (laughs) i I think it's fair to say most people don't like Mm -hmm. the the cases where a film is turned into a book successfully Mm -hmm. are pretty much ones we've are i I think we've pretty much covered one of the few examples being neverwhere 
And mm-hmm. that only worked because Neil Gaiman was involved in both versions. Um, mm-hmm. Usually when you get a book adaptation of a movie, it's just a hollow cash grab. Yeah. I was only going to move into the idea of the novelization because I wanted to talk about this idea of faithfulness. We've already come on pretty hard on the side of good in an adaptation does not mean faithful. Mm-hmm. You could have a very faithful adaptation that ends up doing nothing for you mm-hmm. maybe because it doesn't let you consider those other angles. So you just go, I could have just watched the, uh, already I'm getting my words mixed up. I could have just read the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually like, cause I've also now watched that um, YouTube documentary on the Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings. And that's an example where they, they tried to bring everything from the book, which includes quite a lot of pauses, which are not good in a movie. Also other disasters of, of, you know, um, production, but in terms of just the adaptation decisions made that might have been active, yeah. <laughs> There's also the aspect of which, if you're adapting something, which details are relevant to adapt. When people write a book, they have like a creative plan, and then when you adapt from that, you are taking like a story and then making reasonable changes, like changing the Battle of Helm's Deep in The Lord of the Rings. I think those were good ideas. There are many good changes made in the Lord of the Rings films that I think worked well. It's too bad they didn't make Arwen as cool as they had filmed her, but hey, that's an editing decision. Oh, well. Um, But if you're going from movie to novelization, and honestly, yeah, it does seem to be a cash grab most of the time. I feel like unless you've managed to get an author who also has the creative spark and wants to write that, other than I think they may hire a person who is a good writer, but may, they may just be kind of filling their contract as opposed to maybe inspired <laughs> by what they did. Um, I don't know. Well, I think the problem <laughs> with most of those adaptations, though, is like I said, the cash grab. But mm-hmm. you're not hiring people. Or studios are not typically hiring writers mm-hmm. who are going to have that you know, creative spark. Or if they do, the studio is not giving them the freedom to. The studio is viewing the novelization as an extra product to get a few more dollars out of the franchise or the movie. So they're literally just picking someone who can churn it out as quickly as possible. And they're probably micromanaging every aspect of what that person does. Isn't there... I'm trying to think. I feel like there's at least one example where there was a book that was turned into a film and then there was a novelization of the film. What what is that? um, I remember V for Vendetta did that. Oh, right, because it's a comic. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a comic that was turned into a movie, and then they did a film novelization. Oh, yeah. Jurassic Park was first a novel, then a movie, and the first time I experienced Jurassic Park was as the junior novelization in, like, grade five or something. Oh, okay. Oh, I mean, going with that example, pretty much every Disney movie. Yeah. Although a junior novelization is a little bit like a boulderization, that's like its whole other thing when you're making a work for kids specifically, that usually alters, usually just makes it suck in quite <laughs> pretty badly is what I'd say, but yeah. But what I was really trying to get to with the novelization thing, because we could, junior novelization, maybe not the best field for looking for high literature per yeah. se, and they're not written to be that way is the leeway that you give the person producing the other media to change stuff. Mm -hmm. And in film, if there's, because we're book people, a lot of book people really do put a lot of emphasis on faithfulness. And then film people will say, well, that change had to be made because it wouldn't work in cinema any other way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if a book is being made into a film, it's going to a production crew there are hundreds, thousands of people working on this thing. There's a lot of leeway for changes there. In a novelization, you're a contract, you're one author. Maybe you're a good author. Maybe you're Michael Stackpole or someone. You still have to follow the screenplay that they gave you because that's what's in the contract. You probably haven't even seen the movie because books, <laughs> these novelizations often come out before the film comes to theaters. You are so constrained that you cannot make those decisions that are necessary to make, take Mm -hmm. the story ideas, themes, and make them work in another media. And if you do have that freedom, it's because you're Neil Gaiman. (laughs) Yeah. 
it it sounds a lot like the Harlequin romance like scripts. Like you have things that happens by certain page counts, and the books are not inspired specifically like in terms of high art, but they certainly like fulfill like what maybe you'd call a low art niche. I don't like that high low dis- distinction so much, but it can be enjoyed. But maybe <laughs> maybe other th- other other media would be better for. Whatever. Well, I mean, using that example gets into whole questions about why are you consuming the piece of art in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're literally just consuming something to turn your brain off and relax, then sure, Mm -hmm. maybe the Harlequins are the right way to go. If you're reading something because you want it to actually provide some kind of mental stimulation, then Mm -hmm. yeah, that's probably not what you're going to gravitate towards. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one reason lots of people would rather watch a movie is because you don't have to spend mental effort. Because, like... a a book that's really good, you it does you do need to be awake enough to like really put the effort into getting something out of the text. You do need to be in the frame of mind that you want to do it. And honestly, if you're just really tired or something, it's maybe not what you want to do. But I would um I would argue that slightly. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think yes, by and large, it is easier to turn your mind off to just watch a movie. I think there are good movies that demand you pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think those are fewer and farer between. Mm-hmm. And I, again, m- the reason I think that comes back to just my typical criticisms of Hollywood that I've already mentioned. But like that, that's not to say that there are never movies where you're engrossed and have to pay attention. Oh, that that's true. Like um, the Gawain, or no, the Green Knight that we just saw, the, the, the recent film that's come out. Um, that, that, I mean, we went into, very quickly, I was like, oh, this is an art movie. <laughs> And I was, like, on high alert to try to be like, what's going on in this scene? It's not. But I think a lot a lot of reviews for that film will show that a lot of people probably went in to watch maybe, like, a fantasy movie. And it, it, I think it's something that demands the audience participate. <laughs> I should also point out that Corey is just had tea out of his Sir Gawain in the Green Knight mug. Hashtag lit geek. So there you go. We are we are we are definitely book people. Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about how yeah, some things there are there are films like that one that do demand audience participation. Um yeah, but and and reasonably maybe people want to consume whichever whatever kind of media for the purpose of relaxation and not like like to make that work. And some people enjoy really getting engrossed and chewing through material. It's just, so, so I think we have to remember that there's a multiplicity of reasons of why people um, go towards art for different, for different purposes. Mm-hmm. So as novelizations have shown, because novelizations are often very faithful to their source scripts, faithful does not equal good. Mm-hmm. But also, being a good movie does not mean you're a good adaptation, Mm -hmm. as some examples have shown. So we're going to be going into the fun part soon, which is where we talk about what we personally think are good and bad adaptations. But I thought we might want to define some terms first, or at least kind of recognize that what we think is a good adaptation, that being separate from what we think is a good movie, it's still something really hard for us to explain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you take away anything from what we've just said before, it's a very personal opinion yeah. to have. I, I would say that you could definitely say, I don't want to say successful as like meaning monetary success, but I would say that there is successful in the sense that the adaptation and the original media, like both kind of carry on through time as remaining popular or, and being enjoyed to that like that kind of like um succession success would be uh, something to me that would define a good adaptation so for me it's there's kind of two aspects of it um the first is i think respect i think whoever's adapting it whoever's creating the adaptation there needs to be a respect for and an enjoyment of the original, and that needs to be apparent in what they're doing. Um, I, I think there's a lot of bad adaptations because, again, the Hollywood model, they don't respect the source material. They just think it's something they can turn into something that'll turn a profit. The second aspect of it is every story, every narrative, there's kind of a core to it. There's like a heart of the narrative. And good adaptations are the ones that are able to just 
distill it just down to that core and still present the core to you, even if it's not in exactly the same way, they clearly understand that core idea and are showing you that core idea. Yeah, and and the core could be the emotional core, it could be the thematic core, it could be the plot core. In some cases, the plot is the cool thing. Or it could be the like the setting or whatever the 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 core doesn't have to be one kind of thing I'd say. Um, <laughs> one simple example of a good example of the narrative core being adapted: uh, No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. You, you can get into all sorts of arguments about the philosophical stuff, what did and didn't make it, but narratively, there's still a, there's a solid narrative core to it that they did adapt, and they did pick up on some of the key moments of the narrative and introduce some of the same questions into those moments or allow those moments to ask the same questions in film that they ask in the book. I think that concept of the core is going to be important for our discussion because a thing book people are going to say a lot when considering film adaptations is, oh, they cut so much. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough time in the runtime to really convey what's in the book. Mm -hmm. And we have our counter argument that there is an element that you can get across in any kind of runtime mm-hmm. <laughs> through any mm-hmm. kind of medium. That's what we're searching for when we go out to watch and experience these things. So the fun part. What are the movies that you consider good adaptations? We already named one. <laughs> We're going to start there. The Green Knight or No Country? The Green Knight. The Green Knight. Okay. I loved the Green Knight movie. Um, and I say that as someone who loves the book. I took a class in university on medieval literature where we read and you know really picked apart the Green Knight in detail. It's arguably one of my favorite stories i still reread it every couple years and i think what made the movie work so well is there are a lot of narrative beats the director didn't pick up on because they don't make sense in a modern context they like if, if you took if you took them literally from the story they don't make sense like the stakes that they represent are not clear to a modern audience but what the director did is they looked for what is the core message of what the story is trying to say And they actually added content in service of that message. Mm -hmm. So I I thought it was brilliantly done and brilliantly conveyed a lot of very kind of complex, almost foreign medieval ideas to a modern audience in a way that makes those ideas accessible and understandable. Yeah, and it's a great example of it was extremely different. And I actually really like the differences in it from from the source material. And I think for me, what it got was like the idea of like the supernatural pervading everything, the, how they kind of had that tone the whole way through. The, the kind of to, what I got from the sense of it was like the question of what does it mean to be honorable is like the kind of thematic question of the, of the film. And that mm-hmm. because that chivalry is really not a concept we hold particularly, but to like kind of really communicate that. And then they went really weird. And I just thought all the weird stuff was really refreshing. <laughs> so that was, which was nice. And and not at all like any other King, other King Arthur type movie, which was just great. So yeah. Again, I, I loved the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, again, even though a lot of it wasn't in the original story, part of it because a lot of it was just fun. Um, but again, part of it because even though it wasn't in the story, it still served the idea of the story. And that, and that's why I think it, it, it fit. It wasn't mm-hmm. something thrown in just for its own sake. Mm-hmm. It was something that was added, but added in such a way where it was added in service of the narrative. I've called The Green Knight an adaptation of absences, which I think might be my favorite approach to moving from a medium to a different medium, because what is in the movie from the poem is actually not really the focus and not most of the runtime. Most of the Green Knight takes place in the parts that the Pope alighted over or just left out, isn't covered in there. And that circles back to our earlier point about being able to see something in a different way. And I mean, I know that Game of Thrones ended really poorly, but (laughs) (laughs) season one did this. And it made it a really refreshing watch. Like most of the scenes in season one of Game of Thrones are not in the book. There's stuff that are happening in tandem with the book a lot of the time because their budget wasn't big enough to do the things in the book. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting to see that kind of, oh, behind the curtain, 
Mm-hmm. These characters come across differently when you see them in different settings doing different things. And that was really successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, it turned out the directors couldn't pick up on the story on their own and take it to the end. But then it wasn't an adaptation anymore. So it is outside the purview of this podcast. Yes, indeed. No further comment there. <laughs> so just to pick up on, um, to change to another adaptation... I, I think this is um, the rare example where I prefer the adaptation to the source material, and that's Ghost in the Shell. When I talk about Ghost in the Shell, I'm referring to the anime adaptation from the 90s, not the Hollywood one. Um, and what one of the things I think that makes the movie better is the original comic is not actually one narrative. It was a short-running series of episodic issues basically each issue was a different story and there might be elements that carry across but it's not one self-contained narrative the reason the film works so well though is under underlying all of the self-contained narratives there is again the core idea of what ghost in the shell is getting at and the movie took those elements made those the forefront of the story it told and basically ignored everything that didn't work in service of that idea And there's a thing you can do in films where you can just ruminate on an emotion in a way that in books would be really hard. Because there's many scenes in that film of like the cool Hungarian choral music going on over images. And it's just, it's so uneasy the whole time that in a way that, I mean, you can have books that make you feel very uneasy. I'm not saying that and it can even be the whole way through and you can have tension but it's just that sort of level of reflection because in a book you always have to have new text coming at you you can't just have like blank pages and now sit here and don't do anything you have to be reading right it's, it doesn't work that way or in that case because it's a comic like there's a lot more action in the mm-hmm. comics it's a lot more kind of you know to be honest like kind of just manga stuff going on right like just scenes and things but the movie was able to just sit with that kind of what does it mean to be human what is Mm -hmm. being what is that kind of question in a way that i don't think would have worked and yeah and also that music because the one thing is that movies get to use music and music is what usually puts a lot of the emotional feeling on the film um acting is important sets are important but music can set emotions in a way beyond beyond other things so yeah yeah the ghost in the shell manga really hits you with a billion ideas every couple of pages and the movie takes a few of them and just focuses on those Mm -hmm. and i completely agree it took me like three my third watch i think of ghost of the shell for it to really click and for me to go oh this is one of my favorite films now and i'm now completely on the side of this is way (laughs) Just a much better, more full experience than Mm -hmm. reading the comic and getting smacked in the face with two billion ideas every couple of pages. I first saw Ghost in the Shell in junior high, and I didn't appreciate it fully at the time. For me, it was just, okay, it's a fun anime action movie. I was going through my anime nerd phase where I thought anime equaled good. I know better now. Fun. That's a strong word to use for that film. It it is a very strong word. Um, (laughs) But then I watched it a few years later. And I kind of like, wait a minute, there's a little more going on here. And again, same thing. Like it took it took me about three or four times watching Ghost in the Shell before I really started realizing just how much was happening in it. And I I've seen it probably ten times at this point, and I still get more out of it every time I watch it. Like yeah. I'm going to introduce another adaptation to keep us moving along. The one where I actually prefer the adaptation to the original source material. My favorite film also, The Princess Bride. <laughs> Um, yep. I will say in this case that I mean I did experience the film before I read the book, so that's possible that that could be a reason. But also the book has this real melancholy undertone to it that the movie doesn't have. The movie's very I find heartwarming, and there's lots. I mean, it's just the greatest movie ever. This is the hands down. This is how it is. But there's lots of things about the performances, and this was a case also where William Goldman wrote the screenplay, so that's an important feature but again he made choices about what works in the movie and what works in the book and certain things change because Andre the Giant could not do the accent for the character that he's of Fezzik that he's playing so they just changed things and that change is just so wonderful um and I mean just everyone's performances is 
are great um, in the but it they could kind they did have a meta textual relationship because it's the story of a Peter Falk telling a Peter Falk character as the grandfather telling his uh, reading gr- his grandson reading book. to his grandson Fred Savage you know the um, <laughs> the book that's the meta text they have there but it, the meta text in the original book is about this like father who can't connect with the son and is going through a divorce and that this story is what ends up bringing the family together but it's a much more like rich meta text it has its own it takes up as much plot time really and there's a lot more going on in that and i think it was wise to just have this grandfather and son kind of back and forth as sort of a commentary periodically and to also allow the plot to just jump forward like when it was getting slow <laughs> like so they kept some of the kind of like bare essence of that meta textual thing but they really made it about a completely the second the framing narrative to be a completely different framing narrative and it, it was a much better choice for a film because otherwise it, i think it wouldn't have been appropriate so much for children to read because when i read the princess bride the book i don't think of that as a kid's book but the Princess Bride fil- film is a family-friendly movie, and everyone can watch that and enjoy it. Well, the, so. the Princess Bride, the book, is not a kid's book. No. It's, <laughs> it is very much um, you know, meant for a more adult audience. Yeah. I wanted to move on to something I think Marie will have something to say about, mm-hmm. which is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Which is this weird example of something where the book and the film screenplay were developed at the same time. So does it even count as an adaptation, Marie? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the movie is just far superior. And that's maybe because I find <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke's prose so boring. <laughs> so it's in that kind of scientific positivist frame that you have to kind of really spend effort. Like a lot of Asimov kind of things. It's yeah. just, it's... It's work to read in a way that, like, a lot of people would find The Green Knight to be work to read, because yeah. it's just, you're engaging with an older style of text, and, but the movie, what Stanley Kubrick did, of being like, well, let's, we're just gonna show some cool, wacky, wacky shit with some really interesting cinematography that still looks amazing, and also then focuses on what I think even Arthur C. Clarke didn't recognize necessarily as being the central theme. I think the director actually picked out a stronger central theme. 100%. Like you mentioned, Arthur C. Clarke was very scientifically positivist. His character, I mean, his prose is quite dry. His characters, I find, are usually quite flat. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, he, he was very focused in the writing of the book on, oh, look at the science, whereas Kubrick realized, no, this is a story about the sublime. Mm-hmm. that is the core of what holds this together and mm-hmm. that's what he shows in the movie is that mm-hmm. experience of the sublime and I think that's why yeah. the film if you can sit through it works so well I think maybe yeah now that, now that I, I'm listening to ourselves I'm like maybe we're being a little harsh on Arthur C. Clarke and he's actually trying to get towards that but just as a scientific person he has a hard time like expressing it in that form but Kubrick as the kind of director as he did is like oh, I can go for that I'm able to do that. So he did. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that makes a good bundle of films where we could actively compare it to source material we have experienced. Because there's a, there are others like common opinion is The Godfather is way better than the books it's based on. I've never read the books and don't really have any I mean, desire whole, to, to be honest. There's a whole You're Wrong About podcast about The Godfather that I think encapsulates that very well. We don't need to do that one. I'm trying to think of other good adaptations, maybe just to list off a couple names without really delving deep um, into them. Well, again, we, we touched oh, on... Oh, The Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings the is The Lord of the Rings one. is... I, I wouldn't say it's better. I would say it's it's very good, and I think that's probably the only good way to really adapt that story into a film. I still like the book. Well, we, we touched on No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. Um Again, I prefer the book. I think the movie is excellently done, but just falls mm-hmm. a little short. Mm-hmm. Forrest Gump. Isn't Forrest Gump an adaptation? It is. And I haven't read that book, though, so I can't really comment on if it's better, I guess. <laughs> are we going to talk about ones that are bad, too? Is that a plan? <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. Okay. I, just before we got there, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Who cares about 
even so far as an adaptation, that is just fun to watch. I mean, yeah, there's nothing like Gary Oldman as a Dracula. Apparently, just having a holiday in London, like you know, See, it's just it's just sort of all kinds of funny. <laughs> I would almost argue that's a bad movie, actually. It's both, Corey. It, it it's is. Both. That's why it's the transition. Well, because it's, it has some amazing performances. It has some terrible performances. It has some beautiful moments, but almost no plot to speak of. Like, it, it's it's this weird thing where it's like a brilliant, bad movie. Yeah. Oh, I just thought of one, but it's I realized why I hadn't thought of it. Because we already did a podcast on The Witcher and how much I like that adaptation. So go listen to that podcast. We think the Netflix Witcher... There will be a season two out soon. I'm going to have to rewatch season one. That's a great adaptation. And just to touch very briefly on that, The Witcher also opens up the whole dimension of video game adaptations. None of those are good. Well, not really. (laughs) Not really, no. No, it doesn't. No, no, no. So, no, no. My my point being, yeah, no, no. Turning a film into a movie or turning a movie into a video game never seems to work. But The Witcher was turned from a book into a video game into a movie. Oh, well, it kind kind of branched that way. Yeah. But if you look at like, I don't know, are we getting into the ones that are bad now? We seem to be sliding that way. Yes. Yes. We are going to the ones that are bad. That's like, you know, Resident Evil. (laughs) Like that's... um... Yeah, we. I didn't even think to include video games in this discussion because every video game yeah. adaptation, and this isn't even a case of it's a bad adaptation. It's just these movies are bad. Mario Brothers, From Super Mario Brothers onwards, they're bad. Yeah, more. I mean, I enjoyed the most recent Mortal Kombat, but only at the same level as I'd enjoyed the game. That one actually, maybe the most recent Mortal Kombat is fine. That's arguably the best video game movie because it's actually a fun, competently made movie, but it's nothing more than that. Like, it's it's fine. Would watch again. It's whatever. Like, the Street Fighter film doesn't have that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Neither Street Fighter film has that. Or the, um, the, what's the, the Tomb Raider movies. I haven't watched the more recent one. I'm assuming it's probably I started that one. It's bad. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, like I said, it's it's one of those things where they're just all bad. Yeah, so okay, anyway, <laughs> video game ones. So moving on to some bad book adaptations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we mentioned how The Lord of the Rings, I think, especially The Fellowship of the Ring, great movie. Uh, as best as an adaptation as we probably could have gotten at that point of time in history. After that, we got The Hobbit. Yes. Which I don't think either of you have seen. Nope. Uh... <laughs> that, that was when I still watched trailers, and I'm like, no. So, we talk about how book people are always like, they cut so much stuff, you just can't <laughs> capture the book by cutting all this stuff. Well, folks, <laughs> The Hobbit is three movies uh, based on a book I could read in an afternoon. Yeah. They added so much stuff. Yeah. I think... Um, almost none of it good. <laughs> yeah. And it's I, not even like they added the Silmarillion. They just added, like, barrels and rivers and shit, right? I, I, I think yeah, that whole thing just, about they cut so much stuff, that's book people misunderstanding their own argument. Mm-hmm. It's not that they cut details, it's they cut the meaning those details represent. Yeah. And, you know, The Hobbit just enrages me, because there's so many good interviews with Christopher Lee where he's talking about his interpretation of Saruman for that. You know, a man who has met Tolkien. A man who knows what a person sounds like when they're dying when you stab them from behind because he's done that or has been involved in that. A man who just has this, like, respect and understanding of the characters in the text. And I'm like, you had that. You could have made a 90-minute movie that had all these cool things going on and it would have been so tight Ah, and he's dead now. You can't do it now. He's dead. So, the, yeah. Oh, the parts so of bad. The Hobbit that actually adapt what's in the book, surprise, surprise, those are pretty good. Riddles in the Dark, the riddle game between Golem and Bilbo, mm-hmm. looks really good. But it's so diluted, yeah. and those emotional beats are followed up by completely separate storylines that eclipse them. It, it's bad when the Rankin-Bass cartoon is better. <laughs> Because that cartoon is like, it's not great. It's just kind of fine. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. So you cut Tom Bombadil from the Lord of the Rings movies and everybody said, that's a great call. You should have done that. So why do you reinsert him but as Radagast the Brown 
and give him a bigger role than Tom Bombadil ever had in those books that people complain about all the time. Tom Bombadil showing up for a couple of chapters. Radagast is in all three movies. Yeah, it's... And is that character... Why? <laughs> like, oh, this... But yeah, the there's, our, there's our opposite of extreme of just... Yeah. It's not... You miss the core by diluting it to the extent that yeah. it obscures any value that the material had in the first place but at least the core Um, was there highly diluted the black cauldron has no core (laughs) (laughs) the black cauldron that the cartoon yes not very good um and there's and and, you know it's another case because those that we've done them i think on the chronicles of pride already but like those books are so good it's very it would have been pretty easy to keep you know an emotional core. Maybe they should have had Rankin Bass do it. I don't know. <laughs> um, the animation wouldn't have been as good, but um, here's another one that's not very good, I think, for any of the film adaptations, which is The War of the Worlds. Because I've seen mm. both the 50s adaptation. I, ha- I think there's an earlier one from the 30s that I, or 20s that I, I haven't seen. Maybe. Um, I could be just pretending that. Um, and I have also seen the Spielberg one. The Spielberg one is kind of fine, but I'm going to say that it's it's a case where you adapted the main plot points, but you kind of missed... It's, it's focusing on a very different kind of problem. I don't want to say it's a much more American sort of problem. Maybe it's just my anti-Americanism coming out. Um, I just... It just doesn't have something. And there's there's a real wackiness to the original War of the Worlds. Like, the radio play, I would say, is a great adaptation of the, of the War of the Worlds. Mm. And that's... To, but but to me they made all kinds of decisions you because where they used the media of radio as what it was at the time to make it interesting and therefore it became really did all kinds of stuff when that broadcast went out but the the book the war of the worlds you i mean if you're going to make a modern adaptation of this and i think there actually might be one in the works where it's like you got people in stagecoaches running from alien tripods why not adapt that? Because that's nuts. They've got, like, that old, like, 19th century, like, ship that rams a tripod that is destroyed because they don't have anything more than steam power. Like, the scale of difference s- is so different from between the technologies. Well, what- that... That to me is what because in the book it's so scary because they're so overwhelming. There is nothing they can do. Whereas in like the modern movie, there's like tanks and stuff, and well, you, you could nuke them. Is what I feel like. You just described <laughs> so, though, yeah. kind of going back to that idea of the core, right? Yeah. Like what you just described, it's clearly H.G. Wells was thinking about technology. He was thinking yeah. about okay, we've got all this sophisticated stuff, but what if somebody more sophisticated than us comes along? What is that going to look like? Yeah. Whereas mod- setting it in the modern day just kind of makes it, it's like, oh, look, we're being invaded. Yeah. I don't know. I think that people, some people may prefer that movie. That's fine. It's, it's just my preference. Really briefly, because I think at some point we'll come back to it. The Dune films that currently <laughs> exist. Just to, like, tie it up in a neat bow. Yeah. Um, Maybe this will be more like a preview for, because I think we'll come back to Dune again maybe later after this, after both of the... Villeneuve films have come out. But what's wrong with the Dune movies, guys? Well, the 1980s Dune movie is plagued with production issues. And you can tell when you watch it, it is cut in a very strange way. It does not really make any sense as presented. There are some nice visuals in it. There are visuals that make no sense. And maybe because David Lynch was directing, I think there's some sense. Well, he makes other movies that are similarly incoherent, but still have an emotional effect on you when you see them. But because Dune is adapting a plot-heavy book, it has missed the core, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Well, a plot-heavy and idea-heavy. I I haven't seen the entirety of the original Dune film, adaptation i've seen bits and pieces of it and as far as i can tell the problems can kind of be boiled down to it's overly melodramatic um it kind of misses a lot of the key points i think i i the thing that i noticed because again i've also not seen all of it i've seen pieces of it is there's ways to deal with time passing like long spans of time passing in film that like do it well and 
there's a bit where there's just a narrative summary over some images being overlaid of like, and then many years pass, blah, 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 blah. And it's just kind of like, there's a better way to do that kind of change in yeah. time. And I just, and and I think that is just trying to, you, you either have to show that time has passed and then show results of that. You can't also just get, and all the narrative stuff that happened in, in some of that things that are carried through. You just, you're going to have to lose that, I think a little bit, but yeah. The old Dune movie so cut up that there's very little left to really grab onto. The miniseries from some time later, just so low budget and poorly acted that you can't take anything on screen seriously. Mm. And this is something we didn't really touch on in our whole adaptation conversation is sometimes it's just the production Mm-hmm. doesn't have enough money to capture the scope of what it's trying but, to But do. to argue that, like, The Green Knight clearly didn't have very much money. And yet it worked okay, but I think you have to have a wise enough director to be able to manage that. You have to, <laughs> yeah, you have to have a director who's able to be creative with little money. Um, I think going with the, the example of the miniseries, as you just mentioned, the problem there, it's not even that it's a bad adaptation. It's just such a low budget that it just turns out being a bad product like mm-hmm. yeah i think that's probably correct like the mm-hmm. something can fail not just not it's possible for an adaptation to fail because it doesn't properly adapt or take the right approach to adapting and it's possible for it to fail just because it's a creative failure that is a great place to end our discussion yeah. on a good and bad adaptations In the end, when an adaptation of a book gets announced, it really just speaks to potential when you're familiar with what's being adapted. Mm -hmm. But when the final product comes out, it's either going to stand or fall maybe on its own or because it fails to reach or surpasses Mm -hmm. the thing that it was adapting initially. Mm -hmm. At that point, the ship has sailed. I'm at the point in my life where... I don't really read a book, put it down and go, man, I would really, I really want to see a movie of that. This would be great to get a movie of. Mm-hmm. Am I still intrigued when I'm aware there's a movie coming out that's based on a book I like? Yes. Even if I know it's going to be bad. I watched Conan the Barbarian 2000 whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was going to be bad. I watched it anyway. I just can't help myself. I think a lot of book people are the same. Yeah. We just yeah. we might not be excited, we might not want it, and like the movie studios are banking on, we still go and see it. You still spend the money, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'm at a similar point. Like I very I don't, I can't remember the last time I read a book and thought, "Oh man, this would be a great movie." But if a book I love is announced as being turned into a movie, I'm still intrigued enough to at least want to look into it. Yeah. And we'll keep our fingers crossed around this Dune coming out. We will never get a better chance with a director this good. I I was going to (laughs) say, I have seen three Denis Villeneuve movies at this point, and he's batting a thousand so far. So. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of those was Maelstrom. That's a great movie. Evangelize all the time. Yeah. And and also Arrival, which is a good adaptation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we miss that in our great adaptations. Yeah. Uh, another adaptation of absences, really. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, shoot. I don't know if you wanted to insert this earlier. I did actually have a thought about one thing, where I think the movie's good, but I think it might fall as not a good adaptation, which is The One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Because I think the book and the movie are different. Because the movie's really, I would say it's a very good movie. I, and I'm a psychiatrist. I still think it's a good movie. There's important things, themes being worked on there. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I do know that the book is from the point of view of uh, the Aboriginal individual, individual, and he is then treated very differently in the film. So I'm going to say it's a might be a bad adaptation because I think the uh, decision might be racist to have made that uh, point of view difference or to have written him out in that kind of way. Another example of a bad adaptation, great movie, Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, 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 that's Almost nothing in common with Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep besides its premise and one scene. There is one scene that plays out exactly the same. Yeah, no iron cod pieces. I mean, lead, lead, whatever. That gets to the idea of the core, though. Mm -hmm. Um, What's more important to adapt? The, the story itself or the core essence, whatever that may be, of the narrative. Mm-hmm. 
And Blade Runner does it, despite being so different. Mm-hmm. Maybe a final question to end off with. Is there any any book out there that you wish there was a movie adaptation of that there isn't of? As I no. said before, I am long past, long past long <laughs> having those thoughts. Yeah, There's just nothing that comes to mind, nothing I would be really jonesing. This would make a great movie because I've been proved wrong so many yeah. times. I yeah, think, I think I yeah, have to agree. Yeah. I, I, I don't have any examples that come to mind of books I would like to see, or comics even, I would like to see adapted. But usually, if I want to see something adapted, if something sparks that thing in me, it's like, oh, I would love to see this adapted. It's never to film. It's to animation. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other discussion for another day. But I, I, I do think maybe it's just my preference, or maybe it's just the animation I'm thinking of is able to strike its own special beats. But again, that, 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 mm-hmm. that's another discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having asked the question, no, not really. <laughs> Once again, proving we are all book people. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes of this podcast on my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. You can also look up the One Last Sketch podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps, and we are probably there. Where are you, Marie? Allegedly, you could find me at iatropexy.wordpress.com or the website Shrink and Expand. But man, I haven't stuck my neck out anywhere on the internet for a long time, so find is in in scare quotes. Okay. Yeah, I think we're all in the same situation of having gone to a little bit of our hermitage. (laughs) (laughs) lately when it comes to social media and the internet so yes i am on twitter and deviantart and a bunch of other places but i am not doing much so i think it's just it's just because we're all book people mike (laughs) (laughs) yes perfect we are all book people again thank you for listening and i hope you have a wonderful day Bye. bye